Hello, and welcome to another episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. I'm your host, Teresa Marks, a senior wealth strategist at CIBC Private Wealth in the U.S. I am joined today by my colleague, Judy Sachs, also a senior wealth strategist at CIBC Private Wealth. In today's episode, Judy and I will discuss how to help a loved one purchase a home. And in particular, we'll take a look at what strategies are often used to help with a home purchase and the considerations associated with those strategies. All right, let's get started. The current high cost of housing and interest rates can make it difficult for individuals, particularly first-time home buyers, to purchase a home. So not surprisingly, I think we've been getting this question quite a bit of, How can somebody help a loved one, whether it's a child, a grandchild, a niece or a nephew or anybody else in their life, how can they help them purchase a home when they otherwise might not be able to do it on their own? So Judy, I'm hoping you can walk us through some of the common strategies that we see, you know, really work effectively for our clients. So maybe you could start off with, you know, what do you see the most often or kind of what's the most simple approach when when clients are thinking about how do I help someone buy a home? Yes. Thanks, Teresa. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's probably one of the most common questions we get, especially with the high mortgage rates and uh, high expensive apartments that are out there right now is how can you help a family member purchase a home? And the simplest method of doing so and the one that most people sort of come to think about immediately is, well, I'll just make a gift uh, of money to that family member, whether it's a child or other person, and they can use that gift to either for a down payment or maybe you're giving a larger amount to actually help purchase the home. And that's really pretty uncomplicated. You may need to file a gift tax return, for example, if the gift you're making is over the annual exclusion amount, which is 17,000 for individuals or or uh, 34,000 for a married couple. But other than that, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to do. Uh, but there so are essentially the, the person wanting to make the gift, they just write them a check and then they can do with those funds with with how they how they want to spend it. Exactly. And and pretty much once you've made the gift, you, you sort of lose control over that asset. And it's really up to that family member to make use of the, the funds in, in whatever way is necessary to purchase or help with the purchase of that home. Um, but there are you know considerations if, if of this strategy that I think a lot of people don't think about. And one of them is, you know, if you're if you're gifting property, uh, gifting funds to a, a family member to buy a fairly expensive home, the upkeep on that home can be expensive as well. The maintenance, the property taxes, um, the property and casualty insurance that you need to get, and sometimes there need to be renovations or capital improvements, and there might be furnishing and things like that that need to to happen after you purchase the home. So that sort of leads the question, like if you buy an expensive property for someone, are you going to have to make additional gifts in the future to help that person continue to be able to support that home? And with that consideration, depending on if, for example, if it's a parent and a child and there are several children in the family, sometimes the issue comes up about a fairness. If we're giving this particular child funds to buy a home, will the other ones come forth to buy similar valued homes? And will there be enough funds to to make all of those gifts? And then if you do give the money to a person, it's sort of they don't have much stake in the game. You know, have the money, they buy the property, and it could sort of demotivate the person from thinking about contributing to to the home and to the property and just generally, you know, feeling entitled to get this gift. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I think those are things that a lot of people think about. And, and most importantly, I think that I th a common thing that we talk about is the, the concept of divorce. You know, if somebody, if a child is going to get married or is married and get a, a large gift to buy a property, I think it's very important to think about what happens uh, if, if the child gets divorced, because that money is now the child's, and it may be that you need either a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement to iron out exactly how those funds get returned to that child should there be a divorce or other, other issue. So really thinking about in that case how the child might take title or at least have an agreement with, with their spouse or their future spouse as to what would happen in the event of divorce or, or death. Yes, exactly. So you, you mentioned having, you know, a stake in the game or kind of, you know, not being too entitled. So, you know, if, if, a, if a client doesn't want to use the, the straight gift, is there another option that could kind of have, you know, have that family member have, have skin in the game, if you will, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think, you know, one of the things um, that we often recommend is something called an intrafamily loan, which is a way to lend money to the family member. Um, and instead of the person going out and getting a conventional mortgage, especially where interest rates are rising, they can use the preferential, what we call the intrafamily loan rate. So basically the, the IRS publishes every month uh, something's called the applicable rate, and that changes, but typically it's favorable as compared to mortgage rates. And a family member can loan money to another family member using this rate. And just for example, in September, um, there, there are different rates depending on whether it's a short-term loan, you know, which is under three years, or a longer-term loan, but the rates fluctuate about 4 or 5% right now. But what makes it particularly attractive is that you, when you do an intrafamily loan, you have a lot of control about how to structure the loan. There's a lot of flexibility. So you can say that the family member only needs to pay interest, or maybe you want to structure it to what they can afford, some intre all interest and some principal. And and so in a conventional mortgage, you really often don't have the kind of flexibility that you have in an interfamily loan situation. And what's nice about it, too, is when the um, family member pays the interest on the loan, it's really going back into the family. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, that that's very preferential to have that. And it's possible that, the, the say, the parent who's loaning the money may even be able to take a deduction um, because of excuse me, the, 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 the child who is paying the interest may even be able to take a deduction uh, if, the mortgage, if the loan is secured by a private mortgage. So there's a lot of flexibility in that strategy. What's nice about it is um, it does create that skin in the game because the, the family member owes the lent, loaned money back to the, um, the donor family member and um, it creates some protection in case of, for example, divorce, it, it creates the opportunity for the child to contribute to the, the home and have a stake in the game. So I think it's a really great strategy. And over time, um, the parent could gift some portions of that back. So, so rather than doing an immediate gift right now, they can start to forgive some pieces of that loan over time if that's something they want to do. But at least the child is contributing along the way and it creates a bit of an incentive. Uh, for that child. So I think it's a very 
flexible approach. I was going to say, so it sounds like we have a lot of flexibility with that approach, both with the, the, the way you can structure payments, but also the fact that you can keep the money in the family, which I think is really attractive to a lot of people. And then if you do all of the, the right paperwork, then certainly being able to, for the borrower to deduct that acquisition indebtedness can, can, be, can be another benefit to, to that borrower. So, yeah, and I make a good, really good point that I really think you have to make sure that you have um, proper paperwork in place that evidences this loan, just as you would between two strangers, because you really want to have that documentation so it doesn't look like a gift, and then right. it's really treated as a, as a loan. Yeah, we really need that that creditor relationship there. It can't just be papered as the as a creditor relationship. There has to be a true relation creditor uh, debtor relationship there. Exactly. So what about, you know, a lot of time we've had people ask us, maybe they, they want to benefit from the appreciation of the property. If, you know, they want their child to live there, but they also kind of want to benefit from the potential benefit of owning the home as well. So what about a joint purchase? If both the, the family member that has the money and the person that's looking to purchase a new home, what if they want to own something together? How does that work? And that's, that, that's definitely a strategy. It's probably a little less common than the other two. But basically, a parent, for example, and a child could co-purchase a property and the parent could contribute funds. The child could either contribute his or her own funds or potentially go out and get a mortgage and contribute that way, a conventional mortgage. And typically, the parent and child would own the property as what they call tenants in common. So what that means is that each one has the right to live in the property, but then if when it's either sold or if one of them were to pass away, they each have a half share in the property. I mean, it doesn't automatically pass to each other. And so it's basically divided between the parent and the child. I think like as in the other strategies, you have to think through some, some issues that may come up. Um, for example, I think it'd be very important to have sort of some sort of co-ownership agreement between the parent and the child because somebody's got to address, you know, how are ongoing expenses like we talked about before, going to get paid, you know, is it responsibility of each of them? Is it going to be the responsibility of one of them? Who's going to manage the property on a day-to-day -day basis and make the decisions for the property? And, and, and I think also if the property is sort of rented or, or sold, you know, how are they going to allocate the income or the proceeds from the sale? And they sort of each have to do reporting. So it takes a little bit more you know, tracking of things. And, and, and if, for example, the, the intention is that they co-own it, but the child is going to live there full time and the parent is not, then it may be that, that again, that they want to set up some form of rental agreement um, where the child is making some contribution uh, to, to, you know, for, because they're getting the privilege of, of living in a property that they don't own fully. So I, I think there are some you know, implications to this joint purchase. And, and, and I think it really has to be thought through. And, and, and I'll just add, especially if a child becomes married and now there's a spouse living there too, so you, you really have to think through how this is all going to work. I think that's a really good point. I mean, kind of having those conversations ahead of time, probably documenting those conversations so that everybody's on the same page, um, I think often just eliminates controversy or, you know, uh, difficult family relationships down the road by having all of that laid out and really thought through, as, as you said. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, it may be that over time in that kind of joint um, scenario that the, the parent would slowly gift um, pieces of their interest to the child. So eventually the child might have the ownership themselves or the child might buy out the parents. So I think there's some flexibility to, to change that up if you start one way because it's convenient and you find later that you want to switch it up um, to a different type of ownership. 
Yeah. And I, th- and I think especially now with, you know, during a period of time where we have such high exemption amounts, that be- that is a very viable option as time goes on to, to use that exemption and, and to shelter any sort of gift of, of a home. Exactly. So, you know, the other strategy I think that often comes up, you know, where, you know, depending, you know, sometimes, you know, especially when somebody's living in a very high rent location or where properties are just very expensive, sometimes the the family member, the parent, for example, would, would go ahead and buy the home and then let the, the family member live there. You know, thoughts on how that works and, and things to be considering if that's an option that, that somebody's considering. Yes, we, we definitely see that. We see that often um, as kids graduate college. You know, they're not really ready to buy a property yet or contribute to it. So sometimes the parents will buy a property, particularly I've seen it, you know, in New York where, where you know, housing is so expensive. And then the, um, the family member just sort of living at the property and using the property all the time, even though it's owned by the parent. But I think, again, in this scenario, you have to think about a few things. Um, both um, tax and non-tax issues. One, you know, is I think you have to think about if there if the child is going to be there for a long time. Again, you may want to have a rental agreement um, that sets forth sort of what the child is responsible for paying. Maybe gives them a little skin in the game to contribute to some of the expenses of the property, and also keeps it from looking like a pure gift uh, to the child just by letting them live there. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is insurance. A lot of people don't think that through. I mean, if you own the property and you have somebody else living there, you know, you you might need to get supplemental both umbrella insurance and also rental insurance just to cover, you know, if there's a, there's a party on the property or something like that. But, you know, there's still a renter. So there's still the risk of complications, especially if the owner is not living there. So I think a lot of people don't think about that. Um, and then... Um, you know, I think that there there are other considerations when you're in that scenario because over time it may be that the it makes more sense to transition that property over to the child and then you might think about gifting part of it as well. But I think there's also the soft issue of when I, I always talk with clients about is, you know, they buy a super expensive property for a child to live in. You know, how does that impact the child and the child's relationships with other people as they bring them over to this property that's really just one that they're staying in? Um, and really not owning or contributing to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are all things that we think about. <laughs> Lots of considerations really for all of these things. And, you know, and I know that there are like variations to all of the strategies outlined that, you know, that we just went through and certainly, you know, thinking about there are probably other options as well. So, you know, are there like questions or, you know, kind of considerations that is, is somebody's considering the various options, you know, how does, how does somebody decide what makes the most sense for them, for their family, um, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question because really there's so many different questions, but I'll just highlight a few is really what amount can the, the donor, the gift, the person who wants to gift really afford to finance and how much can the family member afford? I think that's really a starting point. And is the property that you're purchasing sort of in the budget of what is affordable? Um, <laughs> the budget's always a very important question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if a mortgage is necessary to, for 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 some portion of this, is the child going to qualify for a mortgage, or is the donor going to need to guarantee this debt? Um, those are significant issues that have to be considered. And 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 also, you know, maybe there's a tax benefit to having the family member get the the mortgage to some of the first time homeowner. Uh, you know, mortgage benefits and things like that. So, you know, you want to consider those things as well. Um, 
And then other questions you might want to think about is just sort of the one, you know, some of the softer questions. Is it really fair to give this gift to the family member? What does it do to motivate or demotivate them? And, you know, is it important to structure this in a way that allows them to make contributions towards this? And also, what is the circumstance of that person? Are they married? Um, are, are they at risk of having, you know, any creditor issues or divorce issues or things like that where you might want to structure it one way or another? So I think you really, what seems like a simple question, Teresa, when people come uh-huh. to you is that, want to help out my kid buy a house you really have to just kind of ask all these questions and then figure out the strategy or the combination of strategies that really will work the best for this particular circumstance in this family I, I think you're exactly right I mean this is one of those questions in particular that there is no one size fits all answer and the, I think the the family really has to be willing to come to the table to to really put it all on the table, right? In terms of all those things you just talked about, you know, how does this really impact the whole family as well as the the family member that's going to live there? How does this impact, you know, cash flow and and budget, et cetera? So I think really thinking through all the various options as well as the goals of the family can really help the family get to the right answer on this complicated question. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wealth Planning Illuminated. We hope you found this topic interesting and that you will continue to explore the variety of wealth planning topics available to you on this channel. Thank you and have a great day. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group LLC and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analysts, charter holders, or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner in the U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.